Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Buffalo, Laguna Woods, Uvalde, Tulsa. These cities have been the sites of mass shootings across the United States in the past two weeks. That includes a Texas elementary school where 19 children and two teachers died. And just on Monday, that looming fear that something could happen in our very own backyards hit home. A student was arrested on suspicion of plotting a mass shooting at Berkeley High. The horror and traumatizing details of these recent events have revived demands for meaningful gun control laws. But we know the drill by now. Congress has repeatedly failed to impose gun restrictions for decades. On Thursday, President Biden called for a ban on assault weapons and other federal gun safety measures. This isn't about taking to anyone's rights. It's about protecting children. It's about protecting families. It's about protecting whole communities. It's about protecting our freedom to go to school, to a grocery store, to a church, without being shot and killed. But California isn't waiting for a divided Congress to figure it out. The state has more gun laws and tougher restrictions than almost any other state in the country. That's thanks in large part to this man. My name is Mike Roos. I was a former member of the California State Assembly from 1977 uh, through 1991. And probably my proudest achievement, most difficult achievement during that time, was the passage of the Roberti Roos Weapons Control Act of 1989. That piece of legislation is California's landmark assault weapons ban. It's the oldest of its kind in the country. It initially banned the sale of more than 50 models of semi-automatic rifles and pistols, and its passage was motivated by a 1989 elementary school shooting in Stockton that killed five children. Witnesses say a lone gunman walked onto the campus at Stockton's Cleveland Elementary School and opened fire with a machine gun. At the time, four to five hundred first, second, and third graders were playing during their lunch period. Evidence has shown that the ban has saved many lives. But now, more than three decades later, that law remains at the heart of California's debate over how to regulate guns. We're going to devote the next two episodes of Fifth Emission on gun legislation on both the state and federal level. Today, you'll hear my conversation with Mike Roos, the co-author of California's assault weapons ban that is still in place today, at least for now. He'll talk about what it was like to pass that law in the state back then and what he thinks is needed today when it comes to gun control. Mike Roos, you co-authored the Roberti Roos Assault Weapons Control Act in 1989 in the aftermath of an elementary school shooting in Stockton. How did that incident shape the legislation you wrote? There's a common misunderstanding uh, that the bill was introduced uh, in the aftermath of the tragedy in Stockton, and nothing could be further from the truth. Art Agnos, who later became mayor of San Francisco, uh, had a bill that would put a wait period, I believe, 
uh, on assault weapons. And I, very frankly, I was shocked when I walked into the committee hearing and saw the display of all of these weapons of war. This was 1987. And I went up to him after the hearing and basically said, if you ever decide to give up your interest in kind of prevailing authorship on this subject matter, I'd like to inherit it. Well, as it happened, he left the next year to run for mayor. I introduced a bill to basically ask for nothing more than the waiting period that we had for handguns in the purchase of these weapons. And very frankly, I got my clock cleaned on the floor of the assembly just on a waiting period. And I used the remainder of 1988 to put together a bill that would basically ban these weapons. And then Stockton happened. Stockton becomes relevant because George Duke Majin, the Republican governor at the time, was asked how he felt about these assault weapons and in relationship to the tragedy in Stockton. And he essentially asserted, you know, I see no reason whatsoever for citizens to be in possession of these guns. And that was the break point. We knew that there was a good chance that even though being a member of the Republican Party, a self-identified conservative, that he just may well buck the trend if we got a bill to his desk. And he did. Mike, talk me through how you designed this legislation. What were the specific characteristics of it? Well, originally it was introduced as a generic bill, which means that we described the weapons that we wanted to not be allowable for sale in the state of California. The gun lobby immediately came back and made the convincing argument, very frankly, well, the way that they describe it in the bill applies to all guns. This is all they're trying to do. They're trying to take every gun out of every citizen's hands, including pistols, handguns. So Roberti and I parted at this point in terms of our strategy. What I did was actually had my leading staff person, Rich Milner, go through the encyclopedia of all weapons sold commercially in California. And we made a value judgment about 50 of those that would be weapons that could not be commercially sold or possessed in California and got a lot of criticism from that. Uh, because first of all, it was static. Mm -hmm. It had the AK-47, it had the Uzi, it had all of the weapons that were prevalent, according to police department records, of being used in illegal activity. We put a provision in that I thought was very smart, which was the look-alike provision, which basically said that if a manufacturer decides to now manufacture the AK-49, that is not on the list, the attorney general can take this before a magistrate, make the argument that this is nothing but a ruse to get around the gun that is on the list, and the magistrate could decide to put that AK-49 theoretically on the list, and so the list grows. Mm -hmm. And that seemingly has worked to a degree. Yeah. It has been a bit of a game of legislative whack-a-mole, hasn't it? You know, as you mentioned, it was a static list of guns that you listed as part of the ban. 
but gunmakers simply made new weapons with new names to get around it. How do you think the legislation has evolved over the decades? Has it been successful? There's no question it's been successful. And when I say there's no question, it means that there are felonies on top of felonies if you are caught with one of these weapons. And most of these weapons are the weapons of choice uh, in these mass destruction events, number one. And number two, there actually was a study that showed that assault weapon activity uh, decreased by something like 60% in the aftermath of the 89 passage. On top of that, uh, we have had a legislature that happily has continued to look at all ways in which it can narrow the possibility of these tragedies happening in our state by banning large capacity magazines and a variety of other things I haven't even been able to keep up with. But it's been an active legislature in terms of continuing to be vigilant and to act when they see uh, something that, again, is not in the hunter's interests, but really, very frankly, in the interest of only those who might want to potentially do harm to others. Mm-hmm. You touched on this a little bit, but, you know, now as we're talking about gun control, as we do so many times over the years, we talk about the political climate. What was the political climate like when you were trying to pass this piece of legislation? Very frankly, the climate was no different than it is today. The number of letters, the number of death threats that I received during this, it was staggering. Uh, Something like a couple of hundred letters a day, all very emotional and very accusatory of what my real motives were. And that was not really an issue for me. But what I did see reflected was the difficulty in rounding up votes on the committee to support it and ultimately votes on the floor. This thing was going to come down to one vote, no matter how you sliced it or diced it. More with Mike Roos after a quick break. When we return, he shares if there's anything different he would have done back in 1989, knowing where we are now, more than three decades later. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Mike Roos, we're speaking 33 years after your legislation was passed. Earlier that year, in 1989, Stockton Elementary School shooting happened, and the details from the Uvalde, Texas shooting that just happened are so devastating and probably very familiar for you. What does it feel like to revisit these same conversations so many years later? Well, it's like being in a loony house. And in preparation of talking to you today, I went back, you know, and just thought about some of the key points that I made in terms of the absurdity of looking the other way on these weapons of incredible destruction. The muzzle velocity and what it does to a human being is, you know, so tragic and so needless because they were designed. They were designed to be used in one area and one area only, and that's at warfare. So here's what I remember. I remember the argument that brass knuckles, you know what they are, immediately banned. Here's my favorite. A seven-year-old in Riverside, California, 
was killed by a relative because he took a lawn dart, threw it high, and it crashed down on her skull, and she was tragically killed. We immediately nationally banned lawn darts. You can't find them. You can't buy them. Mm. And yet we go through these tragedies after tragedies of not only children, which clearly is the most heartrending, but any human being. Your legislation was such a landmark legislation. And as you described, it's also part of your personal and political legacy. Knowing where we still are over three decades later, is there anything you would have changed about that first about that first time we passed this assault weapons ban? No, because California has a well-earned reputation of if it happens in California, there's a great chance it's going to happen throughout the country. Obviously, uh, Senator Feinstein used this bill as a template for her 1994 effort. And just too bad that, you know, a sunset was forced upon her. And of course, it expired and has never been renewed. Here's a new idea that I've had that I might approach, which is if you read the Second Amendment, a source of great controversy, it states a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So what does the opposition say? Well, guns don't kill people. People kill people. And what we need is better security at schools. We need better security. We need mental health. So using the words of the Second Amendment, I might well, just for fun, have introduced a bill that basically says, if you want to buy any one of these firearms, you basically have to join your local militia. It will have the responsibility of assigning you assignments after training and after vetting and all of the other that goes with it. Mm -hmm. I just might well have taken it that way of essentially stopping trying to ban these weapons of war and in fact, go with the Second Amendment, which was you need to be a part of the militia if you want to have one of these guns. Well, that's a novel concept for sure. I mean, I also wonder, are you talking to California lawmakers now? A lot of them have pledged to expedite more than a dozen gun safety bills in the wake of the most recent shootings. They range from limiting ghost guns to allowing victims to sue the gun industry. Do you think California lawmakers are responding effectively from from your perspective? I think that there is an authentic, emotional, and reasonable reaction to, again, the fact that there just seems to be no end to this senselessness and that they are looking every possible way. Do I have conversations with them? Only if they initiate it. I had a conversation uh, with a sheriff a couple of months ago prior to this about more that could be done uh, in California. I'm really thinking more nationally about where this debate, because there's obviously a real desire to seemingly do something. And I don't think that this is bold at all. But again, I go back to my original thought, why not a wait period for all gun purchases? Mm -hmm. Wait period would have a huge cooling off. And of course, if you couple that with a true, genuine background check, you may be able to cut down on these things enormously without uh, completely unnerving all gun owners in the United States. There's a poll that suggests 30% of Americans 
own guns. Well, there's 100 million right there. Mike, we know that the assault weapons ban legislation that you authored for California has been successful at keeping more people safe. Research has been done around that. Yet we know it's also under threat. Last year, a federal judge overturned the ban, calling it unconstitutional. Now the Ninth Court has stayed that ruling, and it's pending an appeal. How did you react to that news? Obviously, particularly in terms of living in this world in current events, I found it remarkable and uh, chagrinning and uh, extremely disappointed. I then, you know, quickly looked a little bit into the background of the judge, and it was fairly predictable. Uh, you know, this is his feeling is that, you know, no different than having a knife. And so I pray that the sensibility of the appeals process will, in fact, right the wrong that he created. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about the political climate back in 1989. How would you compare the political will now compared to when you worked on the band in 1989? Maybe one difference. Again, I think the emotions are indiscernible. What I think is different is that at least back then, we could have easy conversation. I, I got two Republicans to vote for my bill. I got a, a Republican governor to sign the bill. You could have reasonable conversations. I had a Republican who had committed to me and who was so intimidated and who, by her own admission, loved election more than she cared about any specific vote for a bill. And they truly scared the hell out of her that she would not be reelected. And she reneged in tears in the privacy of her office to me the day of the vote. Hmm. But at least we could talk about it. At least she was not an automatic from the beginning, no vote, only because it was her caucus that was decidedly pro anything that can be sold. California has some of the strictest gun laws, thanks to the work that you and Roberti did to implement the state's assault weapons ban. And Governor Newsom said recently, quote, California leads this national conversation. When California moves, other states move in the same direction. And we see a lot of state lawmakers trying to do something. What do you think is the role of the federal government now? The national government needs to uh, to move in because of the fact that if, in fact, you're intent on having one, it's an easy drive to Las Vegas or Nevada to be able to get one and bring it back into California. So unless you really have a national policy where you have alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agency monitoring shipments from abroad into the country uh, and stopping those that are illegal weapons, unless you have a national policy, Uh, You're going to have some states where there's an abundance of weapons across the board and other states where there's not. And again, those in the states that aren't are going to figure out a way to get them. It's been over three decades since you co-authored the Roberti Roos Assault Weapons Control Act of 1989. Mike, how would you sum up the legacy of that piece of legislation in light of what's happening now? Well, if there's any legacy, and I'm always skeptical of the word, maybe the remembrances last a generation, and the generation may well be defined as 20 years or so. But I'm proud of the legislation only because it showed that 
the gun lobby is not invulnerable. People who can look at data, who can look at, again, senseless tragedy, can make a conclusion based upon the reasonableness of it. If, in fact, I had a bill that banned all weapons, I could understand the passion, the fury, and the objection. But again, for 50 weapons that no hunter ever uses is just inexplicable to me, which is why I'm now thinking about a well-regulated militia as a condition for ownership. Mike Roos, thank you so much for your thoughts. It's an invaluable insight as we think about what's happening today. I appreciate your time. Cecilia, I appreciate the goodness of your questions and uh, very frankly, your your interest in reaching out to an old guy. <laughs> so thank you. Mike Roos was a former member of the California State Assembly from 1977 to 1991. He co-authored the state's assault weapons ban with former California Senator David Roberti in 1989. For more gun legislation coverage, visit sfchronicle.com and the Chronicle app. On Monday's episode, you'll hear my conversation with John Donahue. He's a gun law expert and professor at Stanford. We'll discuss how effective the decade-long national assault weapons ban that expired in 2004 actually was, and what changes might be possible in our current political climate. Thanks to Karen Creighton for the edits, Sarah Feldberg for the production help, and to you for listening.